0: Welcome to the greg steer youth ministry podcast Uh, i believe in the power of the gospel and the potential of teens i believe the best way to get a teen to grow is to get them to go so i encourage you to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't rate it review it get the word out about it we want to help spread the word get as many youth leaders tuned in as possible so they can build a youth ministry that results in every teen everywhere the gospel from a friend. And I'm really excited about this new format uh, of this podcast and excited uh, for the guests we're going to have today as well as in the future. I want to share with you a little bit about the guest we have today. His name is Mark Matlock. He's been working with parents and pastors and te- uh, teenagers and nonprofit leaders for almost 30 years. He's spoken to over 1 million teenagers. So you know he can speak and keep adults' attention because he's spoke, spoken to so many teenagers, written more than 20 books uh, to parents and teens, and most rec- recently he's co-written Faith for Exiles, which I highly recommend. co-wrote it with David Kinnaman from Barna. It's a groundbreaking book that really helps identify the, stink- the distinctives of young people that really retain their faith over the long term and thrive, not just survive. And I know all that's true, the former bio, but I just want to say this Mark Matlock is my friend. I've known him for about 25 years, and it is an honor to have him on this kind of kickoff to the uh, Greg Steer Youth Ministry podcast. Mark, thanks so much uh, for tuning in today.
1: Hey, thanks, Greg. It's got to be probably at least 25, if not more, because I think when we first met, I don't think my son was born yet, and he'll be twenty-four next month. So,
0: oh my goodness!
1: Yeah, it was at the
0: Dawson McAllister conference.
1: It was at Riverside, at Riverside Baptist. Yep, in Denver. Yeah,
0: and I was just kind of dreaming about stadium. Yeah, that's right. I was kind of dreaming about doing uh, these Dare to Share conferences. Didn't know if I could do it. I uh, went to the Dawson McAllister conference. Watch this guy, like, sit on a stool for an hour at a pop and just mesmerize these teenagers. I couldn't believe it.
1: I and was just looking over to my side because at that event, I remember you gave your first, like to Dawson, your first version of the manual for Derek Share.
0: <laughs> That's right. And I was just
1: looking on my shelf to see if I had it within arm's reach. I don't, it's down in my other office, but.
0: Oh my goodness, man, time flies. And you were like uh, the magician, the entertainment, Dr. Was Was it Dr.
1: Doom? Dr. Dare. Dr. Dare. Dr. Dare. Dare. Yes. That's right.
0: It's probably where I got the name Dare to Share is from one of your
1: sketches. (laughs) You copied me in so many ways, Greg. It was so flattering.
0: (laughs) Well, back then it was, we were called Warriors for Christ. That's right. Yeah. WOC.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh my goodness. Anyway. So, so glad that you're on here and uh, man, we, I think the first time we co-did something was at Saddleback.
1: Yeah. It was for the Purpose Driven Youth Ministry Conference. Um, I just finished my first research project with Barna and that was looking at teens and evangelism. And then you were speaking about it and we kind of, I did half and you did half.
0: Man, it was, I, I kind of described back then you were the stat guy. I was the in, inspiration <laughs> guy. I was like Spock and Kirk. And you were it was like, like, I was the left
1: brain. You were the right brain. That's exactly right.
0: <laughs> You're like, here's the formal reasons we should do this. Here's the impact. And I'm like, fire, let's go, let's do it. But we uh, really kind of hit it off. And I think that relationship and that synergy over the years, over the decades has been a powerful combination. I, I really count it an honor to have you as a friend and as a partner in the ministry. And for those of you youth leaders listening, I mean, Mark has really spoken into my life, Uh, and into our ministry at Dare to Share. So I'm very, very grateful uh, to have you as kind of our kickoff uh, person interview on the new uh, podcast format. So thanks again for being a part of it.
1: Yeah, if I could just take a moment and talk about our friendship too, Greg, because I think it's really significant because some people would often think of us as sometimes being in competition with one another because we were both running conferences, sometimes in the same cities on the same weekends, almost across the street from each other. And we never had that posture toward one another. We were always there to champion one another. We shared ideas and insights um, freely back and forth. We call each other and pray for each other. And those that kind of camaraderie is uncommon. Um, you know, I remember. I think I don't know if you remember me saying this, but I'd gone to a thing that was honoring uh, Bill Bright, or no, it was honoring Billy Graham with this Bill Bright Award. Mm. And um and Bill Bright's wife, Vinette, she got up and talked about the friendship that Billy Graham and you know, Bill Bright had with one another and uh how that informed their ministries. And I sat there and thought, Who do I have that's a friend like that? Not that you and I are like Billy Graham or <laughs> Bill Bright, but I was thinking, Who do I have a friend like for a friend of ministry like that? Mm. And I was like, I think Greg's the closest thing. And I remember calling you and saying, someday when we're old. I hope that people mm. say that we were good friends and supported one another well and challenged each other to do good works with our lives.
0: Yeah. It's I awesome. Hope every
1: worker finds that person, that friendship.
0: You um, really do need
1: it. With a com- yeah. Com- somebody that they are connected to that they can do that with.
0: And I think because we were both in the conference ministry and producing curriculum, we could relate with each other's challenges, hurts, opportunities, threats, and youth leaders in the trenches you know, have a lot of things in common, and you need at least one person in your life like that, really, really do. So, Mark, I'm grateful that you're one of those people. And as we kind of look back, I guess at the close, closer to 30 years of youth ministry, what have been some of the significant changes in youth ministry, in your opinion, um, compared to today?
1: Well, I think… You know, in the, the 80s and going into the 90s, I kind of think we saw some of the golden years of youth ministry in the United States. And I think um, church planting actually disrupted youth ministry mm-hmm. quite a bit. A lot of people were seeing these mega churches, these platforms that speakers and pastors were having. And I think a lot of some of the brighter stars of youth ministry that were really able to connect to a younger generation as they were coming out of seminary or as they were you know going into their their mature phase of life they were going wait a minute why be a youth pastor I'll just be a church planner and yeah. so we actually kind of had a what I would call a glut of of talent in a way of people that were really called to youth ministry and when you look at the baby boomers before those of us who were exers that generation actually said, you know what? We're going to be youth ministers for life. We're not going to see this as a stepping stone or the place that we pay our dues. We're going to live in this space. Mm. And um, I don't know if that was right for them to feel that way, but I do know there was a core of individuals that are still impacting youth ministry to this day, the sages of youth ministry that made a commitment like that when they were in their twenties and I think that's really significant. And we kind of lost that. So there's a little bit of a gap that happened there. We also saw disruption theologically with kind of the um, kind of the, I guess the examination of evangelicalism, conservative uh, orthodoxy, and people exploring that. That was a disruptor that happened uh, in the late 90s and into the 2000s. Mm-hmm that I think started making people question what are we doing in youth ministry? And then the other thing would be, um, and I really noticed that this leading YS um, into its, you know, kind of 40 to 50 year arc of its ministry was that youth ministry wasn't such a novelty anymore. It was actually integrated more in with the church and churches actually did have a better view of it. And so the, Posture of a youth pastor to the church changed, in some ways, and some of that was good, and some of it was maybe not so good. But um, those are some of the arcs that I've seen kind of shift over the years.
0: It's really significant. Let's talk a little bit about that first uh, arc with youth leaders—you know, for life versus now—you know, just going straight to become church planners. I was a church planner. I'm pro church planning. But I was a youth leader before I was a church planner, and I really think it's a challenge uh, just sending out church planners uh, that don't have experience saying, yes, sir, right? When they, when you will work at a church as a youth leader, you're under a leadership structure, and you kind of figure out how it works. Um, and I actually think some of the best lead pastors we have now Were great youth leaders because they learned the system, and as I've always said, is you can you can leave youth ministry, right? Get into youth ministry and leave, but once youth ministry gets into you, you never leave, even if your title changes. You know, I I don't think somebody who becomes a church planner or was a youth pastor becomes a church planner or lead pastor is a sellout. I think I think when you are a youth leader and you really love teenagers and you become a lead pastor, you really become a youth leader with authority and a budget,
1: right? Well, and in many ways, that's kind of why I think we saw the progress, right? Because we did see a lot of pastors that either had a high view of youth ministry or had come out of that. And they were like, I'm going to do this differently. And so, you know, it kind of changed the tone of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I, I do believe there was that, that philosophical, you know, the whole emergent movement was a, was a, a big I think disruption, it really got people questioning about, you know, the power, the power of the gospel and the authority of God's word. And it really sent a lot, I think a lot of youth leaders reeling. And I do agree that third arc of kind of intergenerational youth ministry, that's part of an overarching kind of family ministry philosophy, which has got a lot of good things involved with it. And there's some healthy, healthy youth ministries that run that way. But also there's some ones that are insulated from the real world. And it becomes a little bit, uh, I think less effective on reaching, uh, unreached kids with the gospel of Christ. So here we are now mm-hmm. in this current youth ministry climate. Mm-hmm. And you wrote a book that you and Kinneman wrote a book that I think was groundbreaking, uh, because before there was that you lost me and unchristian and, uh, kind of what's wrong, uh, with, with our current youth ministry strategy, we're not keeping these kids, but then faith for exiles is this, this expose in a good way of what's working for these young people that are retaining their faith. And if I remember right, there were five key elements that identified, I think what you called a resilient disciple. First of all, what do you you mean by resilient disciple? And then what are those five key elements?
1: Well, you know, if we, take a look at this book and see it as like the third in David's trilogy, uh, starting with Unchristian, going to You Lost Me, and then this. So Unchristian is looking at the climate of Christianity in the cultural context. How are people perceiving Christianity? What's that impact? What could that mean? Mm -hmm. You Lost Me was kind of looking at the dropout problem and trying to look at it in a more nuanced way. A lot of people were Looking at, and I was involved in a lot of the analysis and some of the writing, even on You Lost Me, but not in as deep of a way as uh, Faith for Exiles were, was actually co-authoring. But, um, but You Lost Me, everybody knew there was a dropout problem, but they didn't know what it meant. And David helped go in and say, people aren't leaving all for the same reasons. And so we need to understand why. And we need to understand why this is unique. Because. A lot of people are like, well, everybody kind of ditches church when they go to college, and then they come back when they start having families. The problem is this generation is getting married and having families much later. And so they literally are adopting a new script for their lives Mm -hmm. that really they don't just swing back to, "Okay, I took four years off and now I'm getting back my my life. It's more like, no, I've started a new rhythm and church is not a part of that rhythm. Uh, What does that look like? So. Um, so faith for exiles. What we were looking at was there's the shift that's happened in our culture. We are now in a post-Christian culture uh, in the United States. We've seen we've reached the kind of the 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 rise of the nuns and the the atheist agnostic group has reached proportions. So these are these are
0: these are youth leaders. When you say rise of the nuns, you don't, you don't yeah. you're not thinking about Catholic nuns rising up to start a revolution. With, <laughs> Thank you. Can you explain
1: that? <laughs> Yeah. We're talking about those that say, I don't belong. Even to any though religion. it's a really cool mental picture. I just had yeah. in mind.
0: a, a non revolution.
1: <laughs> so what we're talking about are people that just say, I'm nothing. I don't, I don't have any spiritual label or category I put on myself. So they wouldn't even put atheist necessarily on as a label. I'm just a nothing. And so we've seen that number rise very steeply over just the last decade. So, that phenomenon has created kind of the post-Christian context that we're now living in. We're right on the front end of it. There's still a lot of Christians in America. Still a lot of people going to church, even though church attendance has been on the decline. Still, an am- amazing amount of people go to church in the United States. So you can't discount that, or you know, turn a blind eye to that. There's still a lot of people going to church, but it is but it is decreasing. And so, um, so we are going. There's the shift that's happening making disciples. And so we call this digital Babylon, that this disruption that we're experiencing, not just the United States, but across the globe is this digital Babylon where we're now finding a new secularism, uh, a new awareness. There's a new pluralism where we're aware of diversity, like never before. Diversity has always been with us, but we're not experiencing on the frequency or the depth that we used to experience it. We are always kind of you know, part, partitioned off in our little communities and our little, you know, kind of bubbles of homogeneity, and now we're experiencing all of this. So all of a sudden, there's this fear of missing out. Why is one of the most secure generations feeling so much anxiety, depression, loneliness, uh, f- failing to feeling like they're not successful? A lot of that's because they have all of these options. And where most of us felt like, well, I have five options with what to do with my life. They've got 500 options and they're worried about picking the wrong one. And so that adds pressure and stress to their lives. So this is what we're facing. So how do we disciple in that context where the majority of the population isn't necessarily on the same page with what Christianity is all about, what it means and how it's lived. And so that was kind of the context that we were looking at. So we wanted to look at those people that were 18 to 29 years old that have remained faithful in the church? Like, why? Like, who were they? How many of them are there? And can we figure out what may have contributed to that? And, you know,
0: just to throw in Mark, I think it's brilliant that you guys did that because so it's so depressing statistically (laughs) to kind of see the, just the drop, but then you guys are analyzing, okay, what? are the characteristics of those that thrive. Yeah. And how do we multiply that? So yeah. talk talk about those five areas. Yeah, so that- the five
1: things are and they're they're going to sound really simple. But they are like so there let me just back up a moment just say so there are four kind of categories of of what we call exiles that we are looking at. They're the prodigals those are the people that are ex-Christians that say, at one time, I considered myself to be a Christian. I no longer do. It's not just, they're not, they're not just not going to church. They've disassociated with Christianity. That number, by the way, has doubled over the last 10 years. So that kind of rise of the nuns that we see is really showed up between when we did, you lost me. And when we did faith for exiles. So 22 Put the
0: mental picture. You put the mental picture in my head
1: again. Yeah, there it is. Those nuns, the rise of Those the nuns, nuns, they will rise up. And then we've got uh, then we've got the nomads. Those are people who say I still consider myself a Christian, but I'm practicing my Christianity outside of the church. So I'm not a part of a church community. Those that have walked away from the church, but mm. not necessarily Christianity. Now we know that there is not much different from them and a prodigal, other than the fact that they identify with Christianity. So they're they're, you know, they're pretty far out the door. Then we have what we call the habituals. Those are people that are going to the church pretty regularly. But when we ask them just basic questions about just basic Christian orthodoxy, they don't have a good understanding of it. And when we ask them questions about how central their faith is to how they make decisions and choices and live their lives. It's not central to to who they are. That group makes up 38% and they are in our churches, or at least they were before the pandemic. Um, They were in our churches coming almost, you know, weekly. So there's a great frequency to that group's participation. Then we have the resilience that make about 10%. And that was that kind of exemplar group that we were looking at that have retained their faith and have learned how to navigate it, stay in the church um, in the midst of all the, the craziness. So that 38% is who I'm really worried about because David and I kind of felt like they have their hand on the door and they're just waiting for a reason to walk through it. And yeah. so we have the opportunity to help them dig deeper roots and really connect with God before they walk out the door. Well, the pandemic may have been that event. We don't know yet. It'll take us a while to really figure that out, to turn the knob on the door and Mm. actually walk through the door jam. So I'm really concerned about that group. And let's face it, this is a, a, a world event that has touched everybody, not one person has not been impacted by this pandemic. So it's hard when you as a a minister or ministry leader are trying to take care of your own family and then have to worry about your flock too. Um, So it's not like some crisis where leadership might be intact, but congregants or a portion of the congregants aren't. And so you're able to go meet their needs. Everybody was having to respond to this, which means that we are right now as things are kind of getting back into normal rhythms of some sort, even if they're a new normal, um, we need to really work on building those relational connections because we are getting reports in our our research during the pandemic that most people aren't feeling personally connected to leadership in their churches. Mm -hmm. In fact, fewer than 15% uh, four months into pandemic had had any personal connection with the leadership, pastoral leadership in their church. Wow. So, yeah, it was, it was surprising on all, all generations. So, that's, uh, that th- there's a lot of work to be done. I'm not putting anything on pastors or ministers for that because we were all having to, you know, deal with personal, our own families too. Sure. Um, so, but sure. now that we're getting beyond that, we need to start really focusing. Double down on that. On that yeah.
0: Those personal things ships. were.
1: So experiencing Jesus was the first thing. Resilience. So the reason it was important for me to share with you those four groups is because resilience and habituals are very different from each other, even though they attend church at about the same frequency. Hmm. So you can't just look at church attendance and the fact that, hey, I've got teenagers coming to church or even college students are coming to church and believe that you have a formed disciple. That is not a good enough indicator. You have to go deeper. Because when we ask them questions about their connection to Christ, their experience of Jesus, resilience described a relationship with Christ. The others did not show that same kind of depth. Um, by you know double so have
0: a habit a ritual but not a necessarily a relationship yeah right
1: right and and the way that we described experiencing jesus removing the religious clutter from our lives so that we could actually experience Christ let's face it our churches our religious institutions have amassed a lot of clutter since Christ uh, rose from the dead and ascended back into the heaven after giving us the great commission um and this pandemic actually gives us a great opportunity to, to put, to curb that clutter.
2: Hmm.
1: I kind of look at right now as what's happening is a, a garage sale where the church can like take everything out on the lawn and decide what do we want to keep, you know, what stays in and what do we get rid of? And I think that is what every church needs to be thinking about right now. What? It's
0: like an episode of hoarders, holy <laughs> <Exactly>. hoarders.
1: <laughs> you had the three piles, right? I'm going to get right. away. This I'm going to keep, and this we're throwing away, right? Um, Make three piles. That's kind of what, what this moment is for the church. I think pastors that are trying to rush back to get back to normal and leadership that's looking to get back to normal, they're missing a huge opportunity hmm. because we have an opportunity to reset the spiritual rhythms of our faith community and because we're going to lose some people w- w- the people that come back are going to be the most willing to lean in we can take them a layer or two deeper and so we need to, to look at that the second I thing was that was meaningful relationships now you would think that the habituals that are coming to church pretty frequently are probably coming because of relationships but once again, when we looked at the resilience and the habituals, huge difference in that relationship experience. So, so the, that personal connection with people was, was not there. Now, it's interesting because, right, Jesus would say, you know, two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, love your neighbors, yourself. Sure enough, the two practices that we saw experiencing Jesus, meaningful relationships. Hmm. They're two of the five. Now a lot of pastors have told me when I've shared with them they'll go oh we do that and I'm like but if you look at the numbers you'll see that people that are coming almost every week are not having the same experience personally with people. Yeah. And the way that that resilience described the men and women in their church was that these are people that I want to be around and aspire to be like. Hmm. And so this shows that a whole church is being winsome for the cause of Christ. And so that's something that we need to look at. The third thing was cultural discernment. Um, Is somebody able to use scripture to evaluate and make sense and navigate the world around them? The fourth thing was something we call vocational discipleship, which is the ability to integrate the role of faith in my workplace. That is more than I have a Bible study at lunch or before work starts once a week with some coworkers. It's seeing your vocation as a calling, as a mission field. This is something that those of us uh, that are career vocational ministers sometimes overlook is that people that are working every day out there, they're not living to just give money to ministry. They want to somehow actually be the hands and feet of Christ as well. So how do we look at our careers that way?
0: And and really helping young people to, we call it a dare to share a call to mission. Yes. Everybody's called to mission. Some are called to missions. Right. But everybody's called to mission. Whatever your calling is, there's a go and make disciples element to that. And it sanctifies your everyday work. I was a roofer for eight years. And and when I realized midway through, man, this is my calling right now. I remember my, my boss, Kenny Sanchez stopped me one time. Cause I was <laughs> real discouraged. And he goes, steer. yeah, I know you're called to be a preacher someday. Everybody on the roof knows you're called to be a preacher someday, but you're called to be a roofer today. today. <laughs> and it radically transformed my view of work, you know, and sanctified uh-huh. it. And I think, I think teenagers and 20 somethings really need that.
1: Well, you know, what I found, because I used to do when I would do like invitation, altar call type situations, you know, I would always do that call to ministry. And I actually changed it the last, you know, 10 years of, of hmm. doing um, youth ministry. And the reason was um, I felt like it was creating a false dichotomy that, well, if you're, you know, and I, I've met so many ministers that say, you know what? I thought I was called to ministry when I was younger, but you know, what? I don't know that I really was. I think I was just called to give God everything that I was. Yeah, This was just the only option you gave me. Yeah, And so I fell into it. And then the pastor goes, okay, you need to be a pastor. You need to be a missionary. You need to be a worship leader. You need to be, you know, let's go through our little checklist of vocations that you can have in this, this space rather than really helping people integrate, you know, well, who did God make you to be? Yeah. Where can you best? Serve? Oh, you're in the medical field. How can you heal people? Be a healer like Jesus. Heal people through medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you bring that holism to that to that to that experience? If you're into the sciences, how are we using food to protect the earth? To be good stewards of creation. To maybe create more bountiful, nu- nutrient dense. Foods for people that are starving or in in droughted areas. There's all these ways that they can literally live on Earth as it is in Heaven, in just about every vocation imaginable. How do we help people and young people especially see that? You know, we have, um, you know, a a little over a third of youth group attendees tell us they want to go into a STEM-related field, so science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Um, That is a field that is typically like goes against yeah. uh, you know that shouldn't be but that's typically the way it's postured right those scientists you know they hate god uh and so they're so they're going into an area that is very challenging to live out their faith have we prepared them for that yeah um have we helped them really navigate and, that space
0: and have we abandoned those? Those areas, and now a lot of those places are spiritually dark. You know, my wife was a public school teacher for the last 26 years, and she was a light in that school, yeah. And you know, I she'd always have people, why don't you teach at a Christian school? And she said, I love Christian schools, our kids go to a Christian school, but if all the light leaves the public school, you know, where are these kids going to be?
1: Yeah, and we need to shine the yeah.
0: light in the school. And well, let's get to that. What's that fifth? Area. This is the one I'm super. I'm of course super excited about.
1: <laughs> yeah, I put it at the last so that you wouldn't cut me off. And uh,
0: there you go. You let Smart me finish man. all
1: five. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's living on countercultural mission. Woohoo! And uh, one of the things that we noticed about these resilience is that they understood that following Jesus was going to mean, from time to time, having to take a stand against the culture. Uh, when we think about resilient disciples and we think about discipleship in digital Babylon, we're thinking of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. We're thinking of Esther. We're thinking about people that are following God into different levels of intensity. There's a lot of things we don't know, but there came these moments that I like to call moments of epic trust mm. where, you know, you can go with the flow for a while and you can kind of, you know, but at some moment, It comes down to, am I honoring God or am I uh, disavowing God? And in that moment, something powerful happens. Yeah. And obviously we have fantastic stories in the old Testament of that, but, um, but, but they're not always these huge moments. Sometimes they're very small and intimate as well, but there are moments with our family, with our friends, where, where God shows up in the other person's life in a way that they didn't expect through our trust in Mm -hmm. Christ and God to glorify himself in that moment.
0: So you and I talked when you were putting the book together, Faith for Exiles, how evangelism really captures that moment of epic trust or risk because uh, when a teenager shares Christ, especially with a friend, Just like Abraham put Isaac on the altar, they're putting what means most to them on the altar. And that moment of epic trust, that moment of epic risk, and their faith and their actions work together, their faith is is matured by that willingness to do that. And so, how would you respond to that? Because when as I talk to youth leaders about that idea, you can see that confused look in their eye, like, well. You know, evangelism is something you get to after years of spiritual maturity, and right. we kind of flip that and say, you know what? When you get your students sharing their faith, they own their faith uh, earlier and quicker because they're dependent on the Holy Spirit, and they're they're taking that epic risk to trust in God. How would you
1: respond to that? Well, I mean, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before Nebuchadnezzar,
2: hmm. and
1: he's telling them he's going to chunk them into the furnace, and he they go, hey, we don't need to to you know, defend ourselves. The God that we serve is able to save us. But even if he does not, we are not going to bow down and worship that idol, right? Why would they do that? Because they knew the power of God. Mm-hmm. They knew that he was big enough that he could protect them and rescue them from that fire. But you knew that even if he didn't, he was powerful and mighty and that that was his will, that that was how they ended their life, and they were okay with it. That's incredible trust right there. Mm-hmm. It goes both directions, right? And, and,
0: and just to throw in, that's the Old Testament version of evangelism. Yes. Because everybody listening to that, they knew, they were saying, there is one true God, and he is able to save us. And even, even if he does it, we're not going to bow. That, I mean, that was Old Testament evangelism right there.
1: It, it absolutely well, think about it. every leader of every nation under Babylon was there at that moment. And when they were getting ready to throw them into the fire, they didn't go, Well, hey, I, don't, I think I've seen this before. No, they all stuck around. <laughs> and what did they go home talking about? You're not going to exactly. believe what happened when we were in Babylon. You know, yeah. these three guys got thrown into a furnace, and their God, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, he saved them, you know, that story was told and evangelism occurred. And that's that, that, that moment of trust that happens. Now, how do you get to that place though? Evangelism is a very important part of that because when we trust God, that he really has people's, like he wants them to be saved and he wants to change and transform their life. Mm. The reason we don't share our faith, I think is because we don't really believe that, right? Right. Because if you see that God changes people's lives, how can you not let another person know that? And so um, so seeing that is really important. And I think the problem is we have such an impotent gospel right now to where it's like it is a belief system. And when teenagers are going, well, you know, I can do this with my time. I've got 24 hours to spend. I can do this with my time or I can do this with my time. They're going, which one is just Incrementally better than the other thing, mm. and if you have an impotent gospel and an impotent church, you're going not that thing. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, uh, <laughs> I'd rather do something else. So, if we really believe that the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in us, then that means that anything that we do as a church should be incrementally better mm. than than what. Else is going on out there, right? Maybe,
0: maybe exponentially better, right?
1: Exponent, right? It's that that that's my point. Is it's got to be at least incrementally better, but it's more than that, right? Exactly. But if we're living into it, and so you know, you know, we we've been doing this a long time, and, and you know, sometimes you don't prepare when you're sitting in front of a group of teenagers. And I did this one time. I did not prepare well. So I did the old, hey, take out a piece of paper and I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to write your answer. And so the question was, if you knew that Christ was coming back next week, what would you do different? And what I was expecting them all say is, well, I'd, you know, I'd stop doing everything I normally am doing and I'd tell all my friends about Jesus and that I was going to jump up on the coffee table and say, you don't know when he's coming back. You should do this all the time. That was the, the plan. Yeah. But when I opened up my first piece of paper, it said, I would get married so I could have sex. Wow. Okay. And there so, you go. I, yeah, I'm like, all right. So I opened the next one, said the same thing. Third one, same thing. Fourth one, I look at one of my adult ladies, like, well, at least they want to get married before they have sex. And he goes, you're doing something. Progress. Right, you know? Progress. But, but my plan was, but then I realized something. Oh my goodness. In these students' mind, having sex is better than being in the presence of God. Mm. And I thought, church should be better than sex. You know what I mean? Like in people's mind, if we're not doing that, and let's face there's it, there's another book are- title:
0: "Rise of the Nuns and Church is Better Than Sex." <laughs> yeah. next two books by Mark Matlock.
1: Well, I, you know, if you'll remember when we were traveling, you know, with uh, Dawson, we did this walk with Christ through eternity thing, right? Where we were talking about what is eternity like. We had students writing us letters going, "Do I have to go to eternity? Like that's a long mm. time. That freaks me out. I think I'd rather just like have my soul extinguished than um, have to live forever." and i was like going oh my goodness what why are they saying this and it wasn't just one or two it was like we got a lot of letters like this it was because they were thinking that eternity was going to be like church 24 hours a day seven days a week or like
0: those old bagel commercials where you're sitting on a cloud eating a bagel (laughs) playing a harp you know yeah i think we've we failed to paint a picture of eternity and heaven and hell and all this the cross and all that christ when you paint a clear picture of that i've I think teens, their eyes tip upward. They get pumped up and excited about
1: it. Yeah. Well, it should be exciting, right? This should be the the thing that I want to be a part of all, all yeah. the time and doing. And so that, that to me is, you know, and, and man, I'm, I'm, I throw the challenge out there. It's a challenge to myself, right? When I'm engaging people, am I engaging them on the level where they're like, man, I'd rather spend time with Mark than anybody else. You know, hmm. that's, that's kind of the, the desire when, when, do we, are people getting to church early just because they want to be there and they want to get a good seat? You know, yeah. like that's, you know, are we presenting is our interaction when, you know, I want, these are people I want to be with and spend time with. Yeah, um, I think that's really important, but my, my, back to your point, sharing your faith, you see people's lives change. And so if you're not sharing your faith, you're not going to see people go from light, uh, go from darkness into light. You're yep. not going to see people go from death into life. And once you see your friends doing that, you know, it's, you, it, it, you, you don't want game over, else. game over. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Rise yeah. of the nuns from that moment on. It's yeah. And, the you nuns. know, and I
1: trust me, I'm, I've tried less bold ways of doing the faith thing. It just doesn't work. Yeah. It <laughs> At doesn't. some point you have to say, can I tell you about Jesus? You know exactly. I mean? you have to share the good news. And if it's, and Mark,
0: I'd be glad to walk you through how to do that. Uh, <laughs> hey, um, as we
1: wrap Greg, up, Greg has this- prayed with me many a time, <laughs> many a time <laughs> to receive Christ. Times. Yes.
0: Can, as we <laughs> wrap this I'm up, supposed- faith, faith for exiles, a book, I just really encourage everyone to pick up, um, any other, like how would people connect with you personally, Mark, uh, through social media?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't do a lot of social media stuff. I'm not really great with that. Um, but right now I'm working a lot with Barn. We've got some Gen Z labs that we're doing and some hybrid church labs that we're doing. So you can keep your eyes there at Barn Access. We have some actual e-courses that are part of um, implementing the research. A lot of people right. go great insights, but what do I do with this? And so we've created some tools to help people actually implement that so in their context.
0: where would they go? Where would they go to?
1: Uh, you go to, uh, to Barna.com and it's in the okay. Barna Access uh, program. It's, uh, or right. faithforexiles.com will take you to those resources as well.
0: Yeah, really encourage youth leaders, dive deeper into this stuff. Get Faith for Exiles if you have not. Read the book, go through it. Mark, uh, thank you so much uh, for being a part of this. It's this been fun for me personally and informative. I always learn new things and new words uh, when I talk to you. <laughs> it's like you're like a, it's like an episode of Goodwill Hunting. You're Matt Damon and I'm Ben Affleck. It's like this is my cousin. He's wicked smart, you know. So thanks for being my wicked smart cousin.
1: Oh, well, I'm I'm proud to do it, Greg. Thanks for just everything you do to help this generation know Christ. I, I always tell people there are very few people leading the cause to help teenagers share their faith and to see teens come to Christ. And you are definitely, you know, one of the the major banner carriers for that. And uh, I just appreciate your devotion and your consistency and your focus. Thanks.
0: Oh, praise the Lord, man. Love you. Thanks for Love tuning in. We're gonna we're gonna switch to a, a segment uh, called "Ask a Youth Leader" right now because um, it's called the Greg Steer Youth Ministry Podcast. But I haven't technically been a youth leader in a local church for thirty plus years, and so I'm inviting in my good friend uh, Pauline Ebert. She's a part-time youth pastor at Fusion Community Church. It's in. Cobleskill, Cobleskill, New York.
2: Cobleskill.
0: Cobleskill, New York. And she served there for the last six years, leading her students to share the gospel with every teen in upstate New York. So, Pauline, thanks so much for being a part of this.
2: Oh, this was definitely an honor, by all means. Thank you so much, Mark, for just all of the the years of service for the Lord and for advancing the gospel in through students and working with Barna Group to give us these resources, this is definitely amazing stuff.
0: Awesome stuff. So, just you know, I'm asking a youth leader: What did you think of all that Mark just shared with us about faith for exiles and the centrality of those five different areas? What really popped out to you as a as a youth leader in the trenches?
2: Well, I got to tell you, that was like drinking from a fire hose, or you know, so. There's just so much good content there. And, and like Mark had said, you know, we, we read these articles that come out about, um, the state of the gospel among students of their spiritual welfare. And what do we do about it? It's it's Mm. such a big question. Well, what is it that I can do? What are one small thing that I can do after reading this book or one small thing I can do after listening to this? And so as I was, listening through this. I mean, I've got two sheets of notes here. Um, but one of the biggest things that stood out to me is the four categories that he explained. You know, the, we have the prodigals, we have the nomads, the habituals. Wow. That staggered me. And, and I guess you could say that we probably know this to be true and we don't pause enough to actually consider how can I reach them deeper? Right. And so they're they're coming just because it's the, the basic thing to do, right?
0: So but just to agree with you on that, I mean, that seems like the biggest opportunity is how do we take that 38% or whatever, whatever that statistic was and really get those five, you know, habits, how do they experience Jesus, build those deep relationships, vocational discipleship, you know, um, taking epic risks. Um, How do we get them to embrace those? That just seems like such a huge opportunity for youth leaders in particular.
2: Yeah, absolutely. When you think about what is 40% of your youth ministry and 40% of them are coming in through the doors just because mom or dad dropped them off or because they were invited by a friend or it's something to do. I know Mm -hmm. for me starting out this year, many students were coming out in droves because it was actually something that they were able to do when all the sports and extracurricular activities were out. So, but how do we get that engagement with them? How do we reach them? So that way, when everything else opens up, this isn't the less on the list. Mm,
0: That's really good. You know, one of the things I was thinking about is we're launching along with the Go movement, this thing called Go Share Day, which is the last Saturday of every month. We're going to challenge youth groups around the world to go out and pray, care, and share The gospel out loud with words in some tangible way to kind of create that experience instead of just at a dare to share live or a lead the cause or a missions trip or a once a quarter outreach on a regular basis, you know, that opportunity to take those epic risks. And you've seen personally uh, in your own youth group uh, the power of really engaging kids to take those risks to share the gospel. How's that? helped strengthen their faith in the context of your youth ministry?
2: Oh, wow. Like there is nothing that grows your faith more than that situation that causes a need to grow. And mm-hmm. so when you, when you are preaching to your students and you're discipling them, and then you give them the opportunity to go out and share and just put some action behind their own faith, That's when you see them scramble of, well, let me pull up the scripture. Well, let me refer to this, or let me me actually lean into this. And so we've seen students start to dive deeper into their faith, dive deeper into the scripture, um, have conversations at home with their parents that they've never had before, just simply because they've actually put it to action. And so many people push back against me saying, well, you should never have a teenager go out and share their faith before they thoroughly understand the basic of theology. But when you've, got the, you, when you've got the G-O-S-P-E-L, when you have the basics and you understand that and you received Christ in your life for his salvation, they have enough. They show us in the book of Acts, they had enough. And the Holy Spirit filled them and they go out. And so I think we discredit um, just the power of the Holy Spirit that can be used through a teenager when we inhibit them from going out to reach their friends or to talk about their faith. Hmm. So this, this was a fantastic thing. There's many different things. Um, And like you said, um, you know, having that garage sale of programs as not to go back to normal, we program so many things. And I've seen this throughout 2020 where we couldn't do all the things. And so what could we do? that could actually connect us with students, things we couldn't gather the way we could before. And so we were very creative. We um, started to have hikes where we can be relational with students and actually talk to them and counsel them Mm. through whatever there is experiencing and the burdens that they had. And that built those meaningful relationships. But we're looking at 2021 going, okay, we are not going to just pile on the calendar let's look at what actually gave students opportunities to grow. And so now we're really combing through all of that. And things like Lead the Cause and Live were unnegotiable because those were actually opportunities that proved that students um, developed a deeper need to grow in those moments. So so certainly we're looking at that.
0: So those of you listening don't know, Lead the Cause is a full week summer program that Dare to Share does to really take Teens deeper into the mission, living out that countercultural mission, and Dare to Share Live is a once a year simulcast event where we mobilize teens to share the gospel. Pauline, thank you so much for being a part of this. How can youth leaders pray for you uh, and your current youth ministry? Uh, How can they specifically pray for you?
2: Uh, I would love for um, anybody listening to continue to pray for Infuse, that's our student ministry, that leaders will. Start to own the call to live on mission and to see their community and even students around them, the, the younger students, um, as a mission field to help reach them and to share the gospel with them.
0: Great. Youth leaders, I really challenge you. Pray for Pauline and Fusion, that God will just infuse that passion for the gospel and mission and growth. And Pauline, I'm so grateful you're part of this program today. And uh, I think we both learned a lot.
2: Yeah, this was absolutely fantastic. I I have already downloaded while listening the uh, Faith for Exile. Awesome.
0: And don't forget the rise of the nuns. Just imagine these nuns rising up. I don't know where that's going, but I'm excited about it. Youth leaders, I I just want to thank you for tuning in and being a part of this program. I want to remind you that building a gospel advancing disciple multiplying youth ministry
2: is simpler than you might think. Thanks for tuning in.